Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Ooh, sacrilegious and all that stuff. I'm not sacrilegious. I was all the boy. Found out I couldn't be poop. I said, fuck him. <laughs> I'm not going to sit in the back of heaven. The Great Impost has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University at Duke right now, where we have a snow day. Tamler, this is our 40th episode, which is equal to the amount of years the Jews were wandering in the wilderness. Do you ever feel like we've just been wandering for 40 episodes? All the time. In fact, there are a lot of analogies. Uh, one of them is how much we wander and meander and have a hard time getting to the point. Also, I feel extremely persecuted on this podcast, <laughs> both by you and your anti-Semitism, which I, I feel like somehow has been getting worse over the course of the, uh, over the no, course you know, of the I know, I know my stories of the Bible. Like I, I wasn't even sure whether you were going to get that reference because of your weak identification <laughs> with your own <laughs> group. Yeah, um, but it's not just you, although, you know, I do feel that and, you know, it, it bothers me and I sob frequently about <laughs> it, but... It's also, I mean, these bigger podcasts that I think are trying to muscle us out of the industry, you know. <laughs> really, David, David and Goliath. Really. You know, the partially examined life. They've, they've been pulling a lot of strings to keep us down. Uh, <laughs> they send some hard pipe-hitting brothers to your house. <laughs> <laughs> this, this American life. A lot of the life podcasts. <laughs> Are, are feeling you know, really NPR threatened. In general, NPR in general is really out to get us. Yeah, no. They don't They don't take this kind of uh, threat on their territory kindly. On, on that note, you know, in these, what's, you know, whatever, however long it's been since we started, as, as our listener base has grown, we've gotten so many just nice emails, nice comments, nice reviews, lots of just, I mean, no bad reviews, no... Even when you guys are pissed off at us, you, you are, you're nice about it. Yeah, and, and the emails that are pissed off at us always start out, the you know, I love the podcast, yeah. but man, you guys fucking Fucked piss- up. You piss me off. I'm yelling to myself on the bus, uh, which is great because, because I, I, I hope at least that what we do when we, can, when we talk all this shit is at least we convey two things. One a spirit of uh, welcome, welcoming disagreement. Yeah. Right? And two, we try our best, no matter how it sounds sometimes, to not be dicks. Like, and I think that if you're kind and nice and patient to people, they, they might sense it and they're more willing to be honest about their disagreements, right? They're not, they're not mad and, and ad hominem. Um, and we love the, I mean, we love right. the, you know, the emails that just thank us and the tweets that just thank us. And, but we also love the ones that really take us to task. So yep. one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast in the first place is to build a little bit of a community to reach out to people that we don't know and that we uh, don't get a chance to interact with enough because we interact too much with the academic community. And so, so we just love hearing from you and also, of course, from a lot of the academics who have... 
somehow been able to tolerate our superficiality and the way we glide over every complexity. So you can reach us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet us at, at, at Pease and at Tamler. At Tamler is me, at Pease is David, and also at Very Bad Wizards. And the Very Bad Wizard Twitter's a- account is run by Matt Welsh, who's been doing great who's, work for he's us. He's been doing an amazing job at, at keeping that, that community, at actually building that community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, he's, he's done more than either of us. And he's we're, got a great Tumblr talent. page too that yeah. we should that we don't mention enough on the podcast, but it's really fun. It's got a lot of cool gifs or gifs or whatever those things are. One <laughs> one listener did say that they feel like they're having a seizure because you know uh, a lot of flashing. That's what that's what they make anti seizure meds for, you know. Yeah, Take your yeah. anti seizure meds, that's look right. at the Tumblr account. Speaking um, of meds, I did I finally got some decent painkillers unfortunately the cost of or the price of that is too high i (laughs) actually need it for the pain because it turns out that i ruptured my achilles i was i can't even believe that you that you made so last episode we recorded you you just thought it was like a bad sprain and then and then tamler sends me a message that it turns out to be an a ruptured achilles which is which is uh, horrendously painful it, and brutal. It's just I've like heard. you just—I have no Achilles. The guy showed it to Jen in the in the oh it, the, the orthopedist showed my ankle compared to my other ankle, and it was just you know once you saw it, it was just clear that one ankle had an Achilles <laughs> and the other one had no no evidence of, <laughs> of an it, Achilles does it, tendon. Does it snap up? Do they have to like pull I, I it back think, down? Yeah, I mean, I, so I'm having surgery on Friday, which I'm not looking forward to. It's the first time I've actually been fully put under for a surgery. I've never done that. I'm, I'm uh, definitely afraid that I will uh, that I'll wake up dead. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not. I don't know if I'm at this point afraid or I'm looking <laughs> forward to that. <laughs> well, if you if you do die, it will be a very special episode forty one. Yes, exactly. Very special. <laughs> very bad. Tamler's Tamler finally reached the promised land. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but that's why also I value your emails right now. That's all I have. I don't leave the fucking house. I'm sitting in my house. I honestly, I have not really left my house. I guess I went and saw American Hustle with Jen on Saturday night, which was a huge ordeal. Um, but other than that, uh, since last Tuesday, I haven't left the house. I couldn't go to Japan. That was, that was out. That uh, sucks. When I, yeah. I know. It was so frustrating because I was looking forward to that so much. And I'm hoping that, 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 that they can reschedule it. It's looking fairly good on that front. But, um, but yeah, the Very Bad Wizards community is... You know, it's it's my life. It's the only thing. It's the only thing keeping you alive, right? Now. <laughs> it's the only. It's the only, thing. it's the only thing preventing him from just swallowing the whole bottle. That of, that, uh, of that narco. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of <laughs> Vicodin, which I do have and I appreciate. But I'm telling you, it's not as good when you actually take it because no, you're it sucks in pain. When you, yeah, no, it sucks that way. All you get is 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 mildly less discomfort yeah. that is equally matched by the discomfort of constipation and a slight. <laughs> <laughs> Milk of magnesia, I'm telling you. <laughs> Milk of magnesia with a little friend. bit of, vo- of vodka. You know? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like the poor man's white Russian. The constipated man's <laughs> white Russian. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know about the poor but, man. I don't know how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, we actually concert? we just had it in the house because like a house guest had had brought it. But I've never been so grateful. <laughs> it's, the, it's like instead of a bottle of wine. Like, <laughs> thank you for inviting me. Here's some milk in my knees. If you come over here for dinner, we're having Paul Bloom over for dinner. Uh, I'll tell him to bring a nice sort of you know nineteen nineteen ninety eight milk of magnesia bottle. <laughs> All right, so in this right. episode, we're we're going to do part two of our moral pluralism. Um, right, and Jesse Graham is going to join us for the next segment. So in the spirit of disagreement, we thought we'd chat a little bit about our, our friend of the podcast, um, Sam Harris, and Dan Dennett's review of his book on free will. Now, this has to be issued with, with the same caveat that we issued with Josh Green's book, that neither you nor I have actually read Sam Harris's book, Um <laughs> on free will, but we've read we've only read Dan Dennett's summary of Sam Harris's book. But I don't think when it comes down to it, I don't think Sam Harris when when he does get a chance to respond will respond too much by thinking that it was mischaracter his position was mischaracterized. Although he does yeah. think that about I guess what we said about him on uh, the first or second episodes, he, he accused us of slightly mischaracterizing his view on free will. It was, it was actually very well, well, I'm sure that we did. Yeah, I'm sure that we did. <laughs> Although I don't remember talking about his view as much as I think we were talking more about Jerry, Jerry Coyne. And, yeah. But we probably lumped him in. We probably together, lumped together all these. Which, right. which actually it does seem like even from Dennett's review and just from the stuff that I've read by F- Sam Harris, is unfair he doesn't put that much stock into neuroscience and it's more of a philosophical attack on free will than it is one that is that it has anything to do with neuroscience i guess i mean roughly sam harris's position is is that that free will is an illusion and that we have to sort of own up to it um and and own up to the implications so and the implication the the central implication being that uh, you know our entire retributive criminal justice system is based on the idea that criminals have free will in this impossible libertarian sense and so that a lot of the way we punish people and a lot of the reasons we punish people is unjustified um, and we would realize that if we understood the truth about free will which is a you know this is a position that I have defended when I was in graduate school, it's a position that many that 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 a few contemporary philosophers defend, Galen Strawson and Dirk Paraboom, but then also uh, a number of of scientists and you know people throughout history, Darwin and Einstein and Spinoza, and it's one that Sam Harris gives a slightly modern and more empirically informed spin to. Right. So maybe it helps. <clears throat> to read an early an, an early part of this review from from Dan, he says Harris, like other scientists who have recently mounted a campaign to convince the world that free will is an illusion, has a laudable motive to launder the ancient stain of sin and guilt out of our culture and abolish the cruel and all too usual punishments that we zestfully mete out to the guilty. As they point out, our zealous search for justice in quotes is often little more than our instinctual yearning for retaliation dressed up to look respectable. And so and and Dennett, you know, so Dennett gives gives. Uh, credit for this. That's I don't know. <laughs> this seems yeah, like he, he, the damning with faint praise if you look it up in the dictionary, but this is a, a sort of a funny paragraph. Uh, the book is thus right. valuable as a compact and compelling expression of an opinion widely shared by eminent scientists these days. It is also valuable 
as I will show, is a veritable museum of mistakes, none of them new and all of them seductive, alluring enough to lull the critical faculties of this host of brilliant thinkers who do not make a profession out of thinking about free will. And to be sure, these mistakes have been made sometimes for centuries by philosophers themselves, but I think we have made some progress in philosophy of late, and Harris and others need to do their homework if they want to engage with the best thought on this topic. No, so I'm sympathetic to to this general view that that if you're going to write a book on free will, then you have some responsibility to to learn the literature beforehand, right? To to actually see whether or not what you're saying has been said already. And but particularly because I think philosophers have pointed out a lot of a lot of sort of sloppy thinking in each other's positions on free will. And and Dennett is basically saying, "Come on, man! If you had only like read some of this, you wouldn't make the some of the the mistakes that in your museum. <laughs> At least you have a museum. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a funny clash of two different generations of thinkers, but definitely two thinkers who don't lack confidence in their ideas, positions, and views. They don't have low self-esteem when it, when it comes to their work. Like uh, you and I. Like, like our- <laughs> exactly. Like, like you and I strike the perfect balance. But the funny thing is that philosophers accuse Dennett of this same exact thing all the time. You know, the philosophers that are really hardcore into the free will debate, and John Fisher is one of them who has made this point many times, uh, Derp, that, that they just wish Dennett would engage with, because they think Dennett also just ignores the the volumes of literature because there's been an explosion of it in the last 30 years on free will and philosophy. Given that as the context, it's hard to not think of this review also as he should have read my books more carefully. And even the stuff that he that he that he quotes, he quotes Galen Strawson a couple of times. And then Austin, who wrote his paper 60 years ago or something like that. It's not like Dennett is is so up on the contemporary philosophical work on this. I so maybe that's true, but then even more embarrassing that that Harris does not does not even quote people who wrote sixty years ago. I mean, I guess you would know more than I whether Dennett is is well, you would whether he's accurately representing um, some of the the views out there in the philosophical literature, even if it's just strong. I, I think he is. He is a compatibilist. And we should say yeah. briefly what yeah. that is. It's, a, right. it's somebody who believes that the kind of free will that can make us morally responsible, blameworthy, and praiseworthy, whatever that freedom is, it's compatible with our actions being determined. It's compatible with our actions being part of the physical world. It's, com- it's compatible with our brains causing our behavior. That's what Dennett thinks. He thinks that, 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 that we can develop and defend a sound conception of free will and moral responsibility that can fit within generally accepted scientific understandings of human behavior. Is it fair to say then Dennett is saying, Harris, you're not taking compatibilism seriously. Yes. And you're not aware of the kind of compatibilism that even you appear to be endorsing at times, right? So it's not as if it's not as if Harris is really issuing an ultimate denial of all kinds of moral responsibility. He goes out of his way to say, well, in some and measure, free will, right? And free will, right? Yeah. In some measure we are free and free in the in the important way um, that that might merit some sort of some system of of dessert. Right. Um, even though it might not be the re- retributive version that most people seem to endorse. 
Well, so, I think so, that the, 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 he, he quotes Harris, and it's a good quote, I think. This is Sam Harris on page 63 of his book. It may seem para- paradoxical to hold people responsible for what happens in their corner of the universe, but once we break the spell of free will, we can do this precisely to the degree, hold people responsible precisely to the degree that it is useful. Where people can change, we demand that they do so. Where change is impossible or unresponsive to demands, we can chart some other course. So I take Harris' position to be, look, once we understand that there's no you know, magical, indeterministic, libertarian conception of free will, libertarian meaning we, that, we can, uh, that we can rise above our, our biology, essentially, and, and make free choices. Once we get past that, we can start really looking at the science, where people can actually make decisions that influence their behavior and where they can be influenced by other people who are demanding that they behave a certain way, um, when that's effective as a way of getting people to, to change. We can do it in, a, in essentially a purely consequentialist way, I guess is what this boils down to, right? I mean, maybe the fairest thing to say is that Dennett, Dennett wants Harris to just say, I'm a compatibilist about free will. They agree about the kind of freedom that human beings possess. I think down the line, they're both on board with the general scientific understanding of how much freedom human beings have, the way they can change themselves, the way they can't, and the process by which we go about changing ourselves, changing our characters, uh, and performing action. But where I think they really disagree, and where I think Harris isn't a compatibilist, and Dennett really is, is on this question of whether that freedom is enough to justify non-consequentialist forms of blame and praise. And here's where I, you know, I, I, I'm going to stick up for Harris, which is sometimes rare for this podcast, but I think Harris is very clear that he thinks the answer to that question is no. That blame and praise, we have to be consequentialists about it, given what we know about our notions of freedom. Whereas Dennett, I think waffles back and forth. Sometimes he sounds a little consequentialist. Sometimes he sounds like he actually thinks that we, that we can build a theory of full-fledged dessert, you know, non-consequentialist dessert with the resources that, that, that our freedom allows us to have. So Right. So, so maybe, maybe Harris's retort will include something of like, it may be less sophisticated than Dennett, but it's, it's less sophisticated, but even less inconsistent maybe than Dennett is sometimes. I'm, I'm looking the, through this review again, and I, but there's a lot of interesting things about it. There's, what I'm saying is I think maybe we should devote an episode to this and maybe yeah, have I Sam so. Harris on since he's expressed some interest in doing it. Yeah, he's... he's uh... All right, so, so we'll put a link up to this, and uh, I think it would be fun. I mean, we talked about free will in our first couple of episodes, and we've avoided too much discussion of it, thinking that we had already covered it. But given the amount of work work on the topic, I don't think it's unfair to come back to. I think we've been, I've been maybe a little harder on dinner, but I actually think it's a fairly good review, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in it, and a lot of new stuff in it, and definitely it's it's worthwhile examining this debate in in a little more detail than we have time for now. All right, uh, we'll be back with part two with Jesse Graham talking about multiple morality. Murgatroyd. Oh, ho. Oh, ho.
Back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, now we have joining us a uh, wonderful, wonderful human being, Jesse Graham, um, who is an assistant professor of psychology at USC and author of the paper that, that we have spoken about, Tamler and I at least have spoken about quite a bit, um, but you, you all didn't hear most of it um, because it sucked. And again, not because we of the We had like paper. a two-hour episode <laughs> talking about it, and we just junked the whole thing because we just didn't get it right out. So I still want to hear the original recording. I feel like that's where you guys said what you really felt about the paper. <laughs> no, it, it was so harsh you had to trash it. We should. You say that, but then when you actually listen, you would stop listening after like 15 minutes and say, even though they're talking about my own paper, this is uh, this is too boring. I yeah, can't, this is I like can't. the worst shit I've ever heard. You know, <laughs> that we I always get asked about, uh, on one of the episodes where we talked to Dan Ariely, uh, I erased a joke that he told. And everybody's like, I want to hear it or I want to know what he said. And I think that I would be more ashamed to release the <laughs> two hours of audio that Tamler and I recorded. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I liked the the episode that I did here. And, and let me just say my favorite part of that episode you guys did last week. And one of my favorite parts of any of your episodes was at the very end of the podcast when Tamler's wife and daughter came into the room. <laughs> Tamler blurted out, oh, shit, my parents are here. <laughs> I, like the best Freudian slip. Uh, you know, that it wasn't was- like you were watching porn or something where the connection would make sense. <laughs> You're just talking to Dave on the podcast. Uh, I, I know. With the podcast, it is sort of how I, I how I view them as like oh shit i really don't want them to come home right now it's a it's a naughty hobby i think that tamler was basically so buzzed that he that that little module that is your parents are coming home and you're masturbating to porn kicked in (laughs) (laughs) is that a foundation is that well is that innate (laughs) speaking of what's innate and what's not let's talk about the paper and i think dave's gonna take the lead on it he also has more problems with the paper than i do Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't call it problems. I just call it fundament- just with fundamental view. disagreement. What we're talking about is this view, uh, as you as you laid out, pluralism versus monism. Essentially, what is the proper descriptive view of morality? Do people have a lot of these different moralities? Uh, or whether it all boils down to sort of a singular fundamental principle. One of the things we can jump into is, I think one of the pressing things that that, that Tamler and I thought we, we wanted to, to hear you talk about is what really... 
what is the process by which you decide that something is a foundation or not? Is, right. is, is, and part of it has to be, I think, conceptual, and the other part has to be empirical. So maybe you have something to say about, about and, and a moral foundation specifically. And a moral foundation. Yeah. And a moral foundation as opposed to yeah. a foundation of some other mm-hmm. kind, you know, some other maybe normative variety, but that's not moral. Yeah. We say in the paper, you know, the social intuitionist model that that Haidt worked on for moral judgment, which is really trying to look at the intuitive, kind of affective, um, not necessarily conscious uh, nature of moral judgments is kind of the prequel to moral foundations theory. So with moral foundations theory, we're trying to figure out, okay, the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of evidence that there's this kind of intuitive uh, contribution to moral judgments. And so with moral foundations theory, it's like, all right, well, let's try to figure out what those intuitions are and why do we have them? You know, what is it about human nature that leads us to make certain kinds of moral judgments? And really the process did start with John Haidt and Craig Joseph looking at cultures around the world, looking at the evolutionary literature, thinking, okay, what are the kinds of things that people tend to be morally judgmental about that keep coming up again and again across cultures and what might be a sort of evolutionary basis of these uh, intuitive systems. And so, you know, I, in the paper, we talk about five, the, the five that we've started with, care, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Um, and we try to be really clear that we don't think this is an exhaustive list. This is really where we've started. Um, and in the paper, we also tried to spell out what the actual criteria would be, the empirical criteria would be for something being called a foundation. So there's two questions, I guess. The, the first question is, what counts as something being a foundation and what counts as something not being a foundation? And the second question, uh, which I, I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, that this was the thing that bothered you the most, is distinguishing between uh, what makes something a moral foundation and what makes something a foundation, but a non-moral foundation, maybe right. an yeah, etic- right. a foundation of etiquette or a foundation right. about sort of food norms or something like that. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that's- so how do you distinguish that, that, that conceptual ground between moral and non-moral? Yeah. And I think that second question always does end up inevitably getting into this kind of normative versus descriptive argument. I I don't think it necessarily has to, but just by virtue of the fact that the word moral is used both normatively and descriptively, um, anytime I've had, you know, debates with people about, well, is this, you know, something like loyalty, is that really moral? I think it's immoral, you know, and and that becomes a very normative argument that you guys are saying this is a good thing. I, I really think it's a bad thing. But I think leaving the normative, you know, so obviously we're, we're trying to be uh, purely descriptive and just try to figure out what are the facets of human nature that are leading into moral judgments. Um, and in okay. fact, I, I think moral foundations theory can help us realize the negative side to moral to morality too. You know, this kind but, of dark side of morality that can lead to things like violence and and. Um, but yeah. hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Because you 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 can't just say though that that. Like, I don't think you or John, as reasonable, smart people as you are, would willy-nilly accept that anything can be um, a moral foundation. Even if I don't believe, I don't have any normative normative claim about it, it would be odd for me to say that vision is a moral foundation. Right. Or, right? So so you you do need to defend, even in the absence of a normative claim about morality, a conceptual notion, right? What is the construct of morality, even descriptive for psychology? Where am I carving morality? Right. I took it to to be that 
what you're what you're doing is saying if people claim that it is moral then if enough people claim that it is moral then then it's a candidate for uh, yeah. for inclusion yeah so i think most of the work that most of the conceptual work there is covered by our, the first criterion that we lay out, which is that the thing is common in third-party normative judgments. Um, and so, if you had, you know, things like vision, um, obviously vision is is evolved. But really, when we're specifically looking at moral judgments, we're looking at the kinds of things that people will make third-party normative judgments about. People will get, you know, very passionate even when they themselves are not affected. Um, and so, this comes up with, you know. I'll still have debates with with John about whether liberty is a foundation. I think that's one of the sticking points is, okay, we really need to look for evidence that people get as pissed off about uh, violations of liberty when it happens to somebody else as when it happens to themselves. So is that the – so let me ask you, do you distinguish between moral judgments, judgments that are normative but not moral? Um, So – in other example. words, could there be it's you know, let's say that there might be a, a wide a culturally widespread judgment about not eating a certain kind of food. What tells us that that's a moral judgment and not just a judgment, a widespread etiquette judgment right. or something like yeah, that? So that a- is, is it how pissed off people get? Yeah. So there's a lot of things like that where that you know there could be some specific judgment you do get pissed off when somebody else does it and you yourself are not directly affected. And so, you know, one of the risks is okay, so anytime there's uh, something that's common in third party normative judgments, we'll call that a foundation. And then all of a sudden we get a, you know thousands of, of foundations. Um, and so, you know, we have other criteria like the thing really needs to be culturally widespread across cultures. And so it's not a requirement that every single culture we look at has this as part of the sort of moral system, but that it comes up often enough. Um, and so something, re- you know, some really specific food-based norm might not qualify, but something about this kind of concern that keeps coming up over and over across cultures would lead us to think, okay, there is something about our kind of, uh, you know, evolved predisposition to be morally judgmental about this realm of social life. So okay, so here's a follow-up question to that because it's related. When you're coming up with a foundation, you have to say, okay, what is in the moral domain? And so you've, you've outlined um, a way in which you could say, okay, common to third-party normative judgments across cultures. Um, but you, but but the claim of foundation is more than the. So that's the that's the moral part of the claim. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the foundation part of the claim? That is, what level of abstraction do you pop up to say to say it's not just about eating uh, eating pork it's about eating and right. it's not just it's not that there's a moral foundation about eating it's that there is a moral foundation about purity and what's to stop in the liberty instances or the honesty instance what is to say that there is a foundation of honesty that's not simply one of in general i'm harmed and this would be subsumed under under harm right and so when we laid out these criteria i think a lot of them are at different levels uh, of abstraction and, and we, we were thinking about okay what's the kind of evidence we would look for um, if we're trying to test candidate foundations one thing could be looking at developmental trajectories you know do these do these things seem to have the same developmental trajectory or do they seem to have different developmental trajectories do they come up early in life do they come up later in life um, that's one level of, of abstraction another one would be uh, you know a sort of evolutionary model you know have evolutionary theorists um, actually worked out how it might be adaptive for us to have certain kinds of concerns or judgments. Um, and another one that, another one of the criteria that we 
lay out is evidence of innate preparedness. Um, yeah, can it, you talk about that one? Yeah, and so again, you know, I think people kind of freak out anytime you use the word innate, um, and we don't mean unmalleable, we don't mean necessarily hardwired, but just ed- organized in advance of experience. If, if you don't believe in a blank slate, you think there's there's some things that are easier to learn than others. And so one example would be, it's really hard to teach kids uh, to just turn the other cheek. You know, if, if that's a real moral principle that's important to you, um, as it is in some religions, that, that's actually really hard to teach. And you don't have to do a lot of work to teach kids, uh, you know, if somebody uh, hits you, you should hit them back. You know, that's something that we actually try to teach kids not to do, right? But it's such a, it's something that, that comes up so often. Um, in terms of innate preparedness, what we're particularly looking at... So what foundation? That would be the equality... Uh, sort of like reciprocity, right? Yeah, so fairness. all the kind of... Yeah, and, and that fits with all the, you know, evolutionary work that's been done on, on tit for tat and, um, you know, the, and so, the, all the kind of prisoner's dilemma type stuff. Um, and so but, forgiveness, yeah. forgiveness, because it's not there, would not qualify... For, as a as a moral foundation because it has to be taught that's right yeah and so and so if you were wanting to say okay well i think forgiveness is a really important moral foundation that you guys have left out that is part of the work that you would want to do is actually look for evidence um that it that there is some kind of innate preparedness that it doesn't just need to be taught um that you see it widespread across cultures uh that you see that coming up in you know automatic affective evaluations that that can come up in this kind of intuitive way and that it's common in third-party normative judgments it still seems to me that suppose that you have um, the following data points. Um, this culture thinks that it's wrong to eat uh, pigs and shrimp. This culture thinks that it's wrong to not bathe before going to the holy place. Okay. Um, so what is it about those empirical data that could actually tell you that it ought to be subsumed under the purity foundation and not that there should be some sort of a, a food foundation or a cleanliness Bathing foundation. foundation. Right. right, right, right. Something more specific. You could have different kinds of, you know, these like modular intuitive systems for, say, you know, cleanliness versus uh, food or something like that. Um, and there I think you'd want to look at, okay, do these, do these kinds of judgments actually operate differently? And so I think a lot of the work that's been done to distinguish, say, care and purity could be informative for this, that, you know, these actually respond to different kinds of experimental manipulations, um, or these are the same kind of thing. You know, are, are these both, if you manipulate disgust, for instance, are, the, are these both kinds of judgments, are they uh, both made harsher? Um, do they seem to respond in different ways? Um, the case of f- food, I think, is really interesting because I, you know, one of the critiques of moral foundations theory that I would really agree with is that the way we've measured uh, the purity sanctity foundation um, is is a very kind of conservative purity. You know, it's a lot of stuff about sexuality. It's a lot of stuff about you know acting in a way that God would approve of. Uh, but there's all this stuff that liberals seem to really freak out about. And it doesn't seem to be necessarily just about the harm that's caused in the case of things like vaccines, smoking, uh, genetically modified foods, right. yeah, the, the environment. environment. And so I think there really is a kind of um, purity there. And so you know, if we wanted to make a strong claim of, oh, no, liberals don't care at all about purity and only conservatives care about it, that could be really dependent on the way that we've measured purity. Um, right. And so it, it, yeah, yeah, I think that, that could be an open that's question. More, that's not a criticism of purity as a foundation. It's a criticism of the more specific view that liberals have, have de-emphasized that's right, purity. Yeah. But I guess it could, be, right. it could be a critique of the conceptual 
you know, just the descriptive um, theory in that maybe these are different kinds of things. You know, we're, we're, we're lumping them together, but, well, there's all these aspects of purity that you guys haven't really measured, haven't done as much work on. Maybe they do operate differently. You know, maybe they do respond to different kinds of manipulations. Um, maybe they, you know, have different time signatures in terms of how fast the judgments are made, things like that. So, but so, so it does get into quite a, quite a difficulty if, if the criteria for saying that it's the same foundation gets down to the, to the basic psychological mechanisms. Just to give an example... We do know that disgust amplifies judgments of harm as well, right? So, right. so, but I don't think that you would take that as evidence that therefore, um, therefore, judgments about pure uh, judgments about bodily cleanliness are are in the same foundation as judgments of harm, right? It seems That's right. That yeah, really are. It seems. I guess what I'm pushing you toward is to to admit that is pre-empirical. Like a lot of this conceptual work is that the carving out of the moral domain, it may not be normative for you guys, but it really is not, it's, it's not built on data uh, as much as it seems, as, it, as, as you seem to claim. You, you know, in everyday utterances, you might have 100, 100 moral claims. And I, I think that it is, it is the, the work that Haidt and Joseph, for instance, did seem to be like, let's draw a circle around some of these and to defend why the circle is around this group, right? Why are we saying that this is the category of harm and this is the category of fairness is, is, is hard to, it's hard to justify empirically. It seems as if it's a category judgment that you have to make. Yeah. Uh, and I think, and I think you're right that it's a, it's a starting point, right? I mean, and that, that does call for more empirical work. I think that you should just embrace that you're making uh uh, theoretically interesting distinctions that are independent of the data that that you're that you really say like the reason we think loyalty and harm are different is because they are two different concepts that people seem to use and you don't really need much evidence for that i mean you can ask the question is is loyalty uh, associated with different processes than than judgments of loyalty versus judgments of harm and i think you'd get it would yield interesting results about sort of the precursors to these judgments but i think that it's perfectly reasonable to say uh, you know this is how the moral domain is carved and this is why it really seems as if the 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 conditions that we're requiring for for what makes something a domain versus not is is uh, whether it seems to hinge on a, a, what you know, how is it justified? Is it justified as an appeal to something as simple as harm, or is it justified to something something like purity? And where you mean, whereby purity you you define it? I actually don't think that's unreasonable, and I and I know yeah. why a psychologist would resist it because right, yeah. But what do you, what and do you, I and I do think that's that's you know to some extent uh, characterization of you know where where we have been. I mean you know so when we wrote this paper, we tried to summarize all the all the different evidence, all the kinds of findings that are that are you know helped to made possible by moral foundations theory, and and a lot of it really is you know most of the people that are running studies that uh, use the constructs of moral foundations theory don't really care about, okay, let's find the evidence that there is this evolved intuitive system. You know, that's a really hard question to, right. you know, to provide evidence for. Um, so in, in that respect, I, I think it's it's true that as a just conceptual theory, it's been really useful for a lot of empirical findings. Um, I think, you know, the, but the, the real goal of moral foundations theory is to figure out, okay, what are the evolved intuitive mechanisms that we have? And that is a 
a very long-term goal. You know, it's that's the kind of thing that I think takes a really long time to actually figure out and to get good evidence. I think there's a lot of argument at every step of the way. So I wouldn't want to just sit back and say, oh, no, no, it's just a conceptual theory. This is just – it's a it's a kind of useful way of thinking about morality. I mean we really are trying to figure out what, what, is, what are the things that actually exist. Yeah, no, yeah. I, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to say that, that you should rest on your laurels after making the distinctions. I just think that, that much like we have to carve – other psychological space, like what is an emotion and what it, you know, what is anger versus fear? Like we kind of do that stuff, and we we do it with with both common sense and some critical conceptual distinctions. That before we even get to do a study where we manipulate, right? Anger, Absolutely, manipulate. yeah, yeah. Let's take a let's take a short break, and when we come back, I want to uh, two things. So I want to ask you why you think that social intuitionism is this essential aspect of moral foundations theory because we had some questions about that and then I, 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 I would love to press you Jesse on what you think the normative the ethical implications right. of your descriptive work is you, you could just read the sentence the paragraph on. <laughs> Yeah, the move beyond the cop yeah. out. Like we're only making distances. Man, I can't believe what the hell, guys! You called me a weasel, and you know my mom listens to this show. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, don't be a weasel, and we won't call you that. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're here with Jesse Graham, and we are talking about his paper um, with Jonathan Haidt and about seven other authors, or how many other authors? Uh, it's also Five. Seneca Kaleva, Matt Motel, Ravi Iyer, Sean Wojcik, and Pete Ditto. There you go. That's and Pete Ditto, it, proper yes. pronunciation and everything. The reason we're, we decided to do this episode now is because after our episode uh on the top five movies on personal identity uh we got a lot of emails we got a lot of tweets and we actually talked about them at some length in the in the episode that we junked because it was it just didn't work and it was too boring but um uh but one of them one of the emails we got was from jesse and he was taking us to task for not including um how do you pronounce it? Synecdoche. 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 Yeah. 
Synecdoche, New York, um, as one of the top five movies th- uh, about personal identity. I mean, we had, being John Malkovich on, I think, both of our honorable mentions lists, uh, although it didn't make either of our lists, that's another Charlie Kaufman screenplay. Uh, but I didn't put that on simply because I had seen it. What is it about that movie that you think is so illuminating about uh, personal I'll, identity? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I have a problem with that movie. And my wife would tell you I have a problem with that movie that I I've watched it way too many times that I get uh, way too well, you into need a, it. You I, need at least three times to even figure out that, that there is something non, non-random. non Yeah, so it's a movie that definitely rewards repeat viewings. Um, mostly I just was sad when I listened to your episode and I thought, oh, those guys, like everybody else I know, probably hate that movie. Uh, I was really happy when you said that you actually hadn't seen it. Um, and, I, you know, it does all kinds of stuff with identity, and he his identity changes into somebody else's. So I thought it it could be included, but mostly it's just a, a weird, giant, big mess of a movie that I, I love way, way too much. You uh, you say, oh, no, my parents are home when you're like, <laughs> watching it now. Exactly. It, it's a lot of it is just about death, and as Tamler and maybe our listeners know, like I deny my death so strongly. Yeah, that, uh, it's 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 a movie about human frailty, and and oh, it really uh, it really looks it in the face, and yeah, and, and so a lot of the movie does. I mean, the, most of the people I know that. Um, have seen the movie, hated the movie because they said it was too depressing because it was all about death. It was about getting older. You know, so for a huge chunk of the movie, all the characters are, are elderly. You know, they have old age makeup. Um, and I think people don't want to see that always. So, right. You know, right. so. Why would you do all, that all to of your his face? Movie, <laughs> all, all of his movies, you know, uh, the, the screenplay movies. So there's Adaptation, Being John Malkovich, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is our... Our, our greatest omission. Uh, they're all very sad. They have this just, they have a, just this underlying sadness that pervades the movie. But because right. he's so clever and so funny and has this, uh, you know, he, he always frames these these plots in really interesting ways and in really cool ways. You can sort of get past that. But my my, my the reason I just never was motivated to see this is that I heard that this was all just sadness and weirdness without the sort of the fun or the humor that makes it bearable. Yeah. And it, and it is a really funny, I, I, I don't know. A lot of people I talked to said, I don't, I don't remember a single joke in that movie, but the, the whole thing is, I think really, really funny. So the example that I, I sent you guys is, uh, when the main character, um, Caden Catard, uh, finds out that his father dies, and it, and it's a sad scene because he finds out that his father dies. But what he says to to his his wife is, "My father died. They said his body was riddled with cancer, and that he didn't know. He went in because his finger hurt. They said he mm-hmm. suffered horribly, and that he called out for me before he died. They said that he said he regretted his life. They said he said a lot of things, too many to recount. And they said it was the longest and saddest deathbed speech any of them had ever heard. So you know, after you see it a couple times, you think, wait a minute, that's ridiculous." <laughs> But that's, you know, I guess like the whole movie, I think, is kind of his subjective point of view, you know, so that's how it seems to him. But it's this kind of ridiculously over the top kind of maudlin, um, but yet it's somehow also, you know, legitimately sad at the same time. So it, uh, I think one of the reasons that the sadness in these in these movies is is a, a good, valuable kind is that it's not pulling your heartstrings. It's not the cheap kind of sadness exactly. that you would get yeah, from yeah. like a blockbuster, or, yeah. you know, or like, you know, even like an Academy Award nominated sort of 
um, where it's just like, oh, he lost his kid, you know, the dog dies, yeah. like he's my dog, pa. Uh, it's actually a deep, deep, you know, he takes, uh, it takes a, a genuine long, form of sadness. Exactly. It takes yeah. a long time to make the viewer care enough to feel the deep despair and sadness. You know? Before we move on, I got to say, Paul Bloom was really adamant that the prestige should have been on. And I, I think I agree. Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good. Uh, so, and he wanted. There were a lot of really good suggestions. I still think we need to go back and maybe, go through maybe. them and do another movie episode um, before too long, oh, too. Because I have another. I have a couple uh, good topic ideas. How about a guest host? All right, let's bring it back to uh, the pluralism of human morality. So, so Tamla, you wanted to get to a little bit of the the what role social intuitionism plays. And in- yeah, so you say um, in the paper when you're describing moral foundation theory, and I love, I just love how you lay out everything so uh, neatly in this paper. And you know, this is why it's easy to criticize, uh, or David's finding it easy to criticize, is because you lay it so bare and lay it out so clearly. And one of the in the it's a great beginning paper, of the yeah. paper, you it's a great paper. We're you, brave. We're uh, brave, aren't we? We're so brave. <laughs> <laughs> it's heroic. You guys, you we're know, heroes, people yeah. talk about the the am firemen I, that went into nine eleven. You, you guys are the real heroes. <laughs> I didn't want to say that myself, but I'm glad that somebody did. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, you say that it can moral foundation theory can be summarized in four claims, yep. and if any of these claims is disproved or is generally abandoned by psychologists, then MFT would need to be abandoned too. And one of them, so you have nativism. We've talked a little bit about that, and we talked about that on the last episode. Cultural learning. Uh, and then intuitionism. Intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. So, uh, and, and, and here you're talking about the height social intuitionist model, and I'm wondering why you think that's necessary for moral foundations theory um, to be true and for your particular brand of moral pluralism yeah. to... And can I uh, can I just quickly say that one of the so to give you context about this, like it's unclear that you would need such like that. It, that it seems to to I think to Tamler and us that you could have a very well defined set of moral foundations that require some level of of thought or or reasoning. It doesn't seem to us to to us to naturally violate your claim of that that morality falls naturally into these five or six categories that they be that they be so gut. Yeah. yeah, and so maybe just explain what the theory is first, that the, the intuitionism uh, claim is that is necessary to your theory, and then why it's necessary. Yeah, so I mean, the idea of intuition, intuitionism in general is that there is a kind of intuitive basis to uh, a lot of our moral judgments. Um, I guess I, I would say it doesn't necessarily have to rest on uh, intuition being the only input into our moral judgments. But I think it does rest on that being uh, one of the important inputs to our moral judgment. So if it was all just deliberated, if it was all just reasoning, um, then I think you would get, you know, people grow up and they learn and they and they reason and things like that. What we're trying to explain is why do people tend to make the kinds of moral judgments that they do? Um, what is this sort of evolved nature of of the moral judgments that they make. Um, and I, I wouldn't see that coming, you know, have, having this kind of uh, nativist view um, just about the, the, the way that we reason. But so you could be a nativist about, say, uh, the concept of numbers, right? So you could say the infant brings into the world 
a very, very basic num- numeracy, right? So, you know, as, as some have, have claimed, some sort of notion of one, two, and many. But I'm not sure that it's required that you can have a full-blown theory that is about the evolutionary, that, that allows for these evolutionary effects, uh, you know, these, these, the, the fact that your, your sense of number has an evolutionary account tied to it, but that doesn't mean that math is intuitive. Yeah. So, so do you guys think that most of our moral judgments or all of our moral judgments are really coming from reasoning and that this attention to intuition is, no, is no, misplaced? No, no, no. So the question or? isn't – I have no issue no. with yeah. the, the social intuitionist model or intuitionism in general. Yeah. I just you don't, don't understand yeah. why it's necessary for moral foundations theory. It seems like you could have – so just to, just to try to give an example of, of what we're talking about – uh, imagine that, you know, uh, intuitions and reason sort of work together. It, it wasn't that, that intuitions are primary in the, wa- in the way that the, the, the height model, the social intuitionist model has it, uh, but that reasoning played this big, big role. And yet still different cultures came to these very different moral conclusions well, if you want to say, well, what's the real basis of your moral judgment? It has this long evolutionary story, and people think it's just because they, they arrived at their position via reasoning. And what we're really interested in is not so much the reasoning, but what is this long evolutionary story? So that might be um, just different ideas of what, what you know an intuition would mean. And I guess for me, the link between social intuitionist model and moral foundations theory is social intuitionist model – um, at a very basic level, says, okay, intuition is really important for moral judgment, and then moral foundations theory is the the sequel to that, saying, okay, so what are the intuitions that we have, and why do we have them? Yeah, I guess I guess maybe it turns on on whether whether all of the intuitions that are talking about in intuition intuitionism are of this sort of this evolved in a variety. Because I actually thought that there was a large role for in both MFT and in social intuitionism for intuitions that are culturally that are culturally taught and learned and become intuitive and but but more importantly so if you had that as a descriptive fact i don't think it would be damning to to this view i would i would agree yeah i think i would agree with that if if you know all of a sudden there was uh new dramatic evidence that actually you know reasoning is is really good at convincing people that they're wrong or right that you can really convince people um via just reasoning alone not appealing to these different intuitions um i don't think that would necessarily mean okay well moral foundation theory must must be wrong then i don't think there's that kind of evidence that you know you can you can change people's moral opinions using just reasoning alone without appeal to these different intuitions. Um, but, I, but I see what you're saying that that wouldn't necessarily be uh, right. It's totally more of an empirical and, and it wouldn't necessarily count, you know, lead naturally to some sort of moral monism because it could be right. that you can convince people by reasoning up to a point. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can convince them out of certain moral beliefs and certain intuitively held moral beliefs or however they're held moral yeah. beliefs. You can convince them through the effective use of reason. Right. But you can't. But when it comes down to these five categories, that's where the reasoning will will no longer be effective as a way of settling disputes between uh, judgments that are 
uh, that are primarily motivated by those foundations. Yeah, it's sort of like the theory is, is trying to specify, okay, here are the areas where, you know, the, here are the rocks where reasoning will, will sort of run aground, um, and it'll be much, much harder to convince people when these kinds of intuitive right. um, systems are activated. But, uh, but, but it could be that reasoning is very effective when it's not running aground on those five on those five rocks, or or and is so appealing could, to them, right? Is 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 making use of those into? I mean, I think there's plenty of, uh, you know, very elaborated moral arguments that are still making appeal to these different kinds of intuitions. All right, but I wanted to get back thing. to the to, yeah. the to the weaseling a little bit oh, because yeah, yeah, because what you said was it's got to be obvious to those guys that there are serious normative implications here. And yes, so, you know, when right. we have the little paragraph where we, where we skirted beyond that, um, you know, so weasels I, aren't bad, you know, I'm not, we're not <laughs> saying that weasels are bad creatures. We're just, we're, descript- making, we're making a, a descriptive claim. About, well, as long as they're, weasels. as long as we're heroic weasels, I think that probably cancels things out. That's fine. Um, By the way, shout out to Jesse's mom. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that she's was... heard your show yet, but she does have the internet. So she's yeah. going to, she's, she's going to hear it eventually. Um, uh, she listens to the show. She's emailed us a few times please have my son on (laughs) he needs the exposure so okay so it seems to me like i I don't know what would be the obvious normative implications that that you know it's it's got to be obvious to us but it seems to me like the reason that we're skirting this and and after working on this for a few years i've i've really come to value just a, a total demarcation between the descriptive and the normative. And it's something that we've been guilty of. You know, I think when you talk about morality, you t- it's so easy to fall into a kind of normative way of talking about this. But okay, so I think the normative implications one could take from moral sh- foundation theory, one would be, you know, if you are somebody that wants to derive ought from is, and, you know, say like, you know, Kohlberg famously said, you know, you can commit the naturalistic fallacy and get away with it. And so he thinks we have this sort of, you know, n- this natural propensity to kind of develop along the lines of justice. And so we can derive ought from that. Um, and then if we come along and say, actually, you know, morality is more complicated and there's a lot of different kinds of, um, you know, intuitive bases in morality, somebody could then say, okay, so then we should derive, you know, our oughts from a lot of different things. So if something seems to be appealing to sanctity, then it might be a good thing. Are you endorsing that or are you no, just no, saying no, I, what I, I think that, could... that's what somebody could do and I think that's absolutely wrong. So one of my favorite um, professors yeah. in college was a guy named Leon Cass um, and he – he he made the statement that I, I just so strongly disagree with. And he said, there's a wisdom in repugnance that there's something about our sort of human nature. And sometimes we get creeped out by things, you know, we, we, we do get disgusted. And so he thinks that that's actually a really good normative argument. If something causes disgust, then there must be something wrong with it. The charitable interpretation of that view is that it gives prima facie reason to think, to be a little suspicious of it, but that it could be, overridden by you know a wealth of other considerations right but i do think that that the the ease in which people dismiss that view doesn't fit with the uh with their willingness to accept you know uh, being extra outraged by say child molestation versus other kinds of violations that might cause similar kinds of harm but then when it comes to disgust, it's like, no, 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 that, 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 can't, that can't have any effect. It's totally irrelevant. Yeah. So Nussbaum, yeah. Dan Kelly have uh, defended that view. And I don't know how, how easy it is to just make that clean distinction. Well, you well, could just, yeah, I mean, you can make a normative argument that our moral 
intuition, you know, the the sort of intuitive nature of our moral judgments um, is actually a, a, a really bad basis for making moral judgments for for moral principles um, that that's actually something we need to watch out for so you actually could derive the opposite normative claim from something like moral foundations theory where you know if, if you think all morality is just uh, compassion and and justice and fairness and the kinds of things that everybody kind of agrees are, are important then it becomes really easy to say well yeah so that's what you know that's what morality is and so we should make our moral judgments based on that um, but then if you expand it and say actually we have these kind of you know intuitive moral judgments that are about other things like loyalty authority and sanctity that some people don't agree on it might kind of put the brakes on that and make people think well gosh maybe the fact that people have strong moral judgments about this doesn't necessarily mean that they're morally right or that, that we should endorse that. Um, that so view. is that your view or is that just a view that, that some that is, people Yeah, I, I would say that is my view. I, I don't think the fact that, you know, so, you know, in all the descriptive work we've done to try to figure out what are the foundations, I think the more that I've worked on this, the more suspicious I am of my own moral judgments and, and moral nature. Although, so then know, what do you think we should derive our moral judgments from well, if not ultimately these core intuitions but, or values? But before, before we get there, Tamler, there's, there's part of this that I, I just don't – like both of you seem to have gone into, this, into a different direction than, than what the original question was, which is not – I don't think that we're saying like now given the moral foundations, what can you derive – I think that the, that my concern has always been that the, that calling these five things moral foundations is sort of a normative claim, and the and the reason that it is a normative claim is because you're essentially saying there are five equivalent foundations on which morality stands. When you jump up and down that something is unjust, and this other guy says that it's impure, you are saying something really meaningful there, which is your disagreement is fundamentally like you his moral view about say uh drawing strong group boundaries and and or like discriminating against people of a different race mm-hmm. is is on the face of it a moral a moral view that is the same it has the same moral weight as these other four yeah i mean i i i of course really don't think we're doing that um but I guess the risk, and this is the, the objection that, that Jost brought up that you guys talked about in the last episode, that just by virtue of calling these things moral, um, and again, because the word moral can be used descriptively or normatively, is giving a kind of normative sheen to these other kinds of concerns. Um, I, I really don't think a, a descriptive theory is is doing that. Um, but I guess what you're saying is the, the risk is that somebody could use it for that nefarious purpose or something. I, I hope that's not the worry, that this is just a, a valuable tool that can be employed uh, to, you know, to serve evil. I think the, the, the worry is that it, that, that it could legitimately, if you take your, what you guys are saying at face, at face value, it could be legitimately used to justify right. uh, judgments that derive from these from from these moral foundations but again i think it could only be legitimately used to do that if you want to you know commit the naturalistic fallacy so if if you're going to derive ought from is and so if everybody's agreed on okay well yeah we should derive ought from is and then it turns out that you know there are these different foundations then yeah it does leave people in a normative bind but you have to derive ought from something yeah right and so you know the 
I, I do think this is a dodge. I think this is a weaselly move on the part of psychologists is, hey, is, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> is that, uh, well, and, and many philosophers too, is that um, you just immediately just start talking about the naturalistic fallacy and fail to recognize that ought has to be derived from something. It doesn't, as, as, as you should know, I would think, you know, better than 99.9% of the, the human population, it has to be derived out of the, you know, the, the, the material that we have, uh, the natural material that we have. And how are you going to do that if you aren't going to be building off of what we have generally, uh, over the course of human history, considered to be moral. I think I mean, that just, has to be the groundwork. That has to be the the, we've, the, we've, the starting point. We've just cracked the nut here, and, and we've outed all of moral foundations theorists as being fundamentally rationalists about morality since they're unwilling to build it on their own empirical... <laughs> that's well, right. That's, that's, right. Be, yeah. it's, that's what you sound like. You yeah. sound like you're being rationalist if you want to make that clean cut. And the clean cut between descriptive and normative, yeah. I think – so I, I think my own normative view would be you know, in a world of kind of value pluralism um, that you have to have a kind of uh, you know, pragmatic system. You know, there's going to be moral disagreements and that the arguments about morality are important. Um, I don't know if that's what counts as rationalism, but I, I do think a lot of that has to come down to people actually convincing each other with arguments what's right and what's wrong. When you say pragmatist yeah. ideal, what's your – end what's the what's the aim that you're trying to reach in 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 uh using this pragma pragmatist methodology what are you trying to achieve i, I think the idea with the the pragmatist ideal is that there is no end point um and the the tricky thing and and you know i i think this there's a lot of these philosophical debates that come down to well okay so do you think you know there's one absolute uh, true ideal of what actually is morally right, or are you just a total moral relativist? Um, I, you know, I, I guess I would be more on the relativist side of it. That you know, in these different cases, different people are trying to convince each other what is right. Um, and I don't know any other. You know, unless you're going to like vote and say, okay, the the people that have this idea uh, just outweigh the other people. I think it's got to happen through actual argument. So, re so reason is necessary to arrive at moral. I, 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 yeah, I think so. When it comes to the normative side, I'm I'm all about reason, <laughs> um, and I'm actually, you know, just personally, I'm I'm very mistrustful of of my own um, moral intuitions. Uh, you know, I I believe the things that I morally believe, but I don't always think, oh yeah, well, I believe that really strongly, so therefore I must be right about that. I, um, I think we kind of flirt with normativity a little bit at the very beginning and the very end of this paper. We have these kind of bookend quotes by Isaiah Berlin. Um, and, and there we, we make the point that, you know, this kind of pluralist way of, of viewing morality can't, you know, it, it, it is, you know, we, we argue is, is descriptively correct if you want to understand human morality. But we also say there's also this applied benefit that it might actually help people who morally disagree understand each other better. Now, I don't think that means, okay, so if anybody has a moral judgment, they must be just as right as you. I, I don't think it leads you to that conclusion. Um, but I think that's where we flirt with normativity. We think, okay, there might be this kind of, you know, civil politics kind of, you know, understanding the other side. Maybe this kind of, um, you know, conceptualization can help people who morally disagree stop pack talking past one another. Well, it, it that's a kind of helps. normative goal. I mean, that is a kind of like, we think that's a nice thing that would be but, done. So, yeah. But, 
but realize that it only helps if you actually value those other moral views as, as, as true in some way, right? So there is a way in which like the, the fundamental problem in, is not that, say, for example, conservatives and liberals don't realize that they have different moral values. I think they very much realize that they have different moral right, values. Right. Now, moral foundations theory, it sounds like what you're saying is that it gives you reason to, to, to take seriously the moral claim of the other. It, like as a pro- it might be true because of this psychological research and i'm i'm just not convinced or it might be reasonable or legitimate right reasonable, like and that's where i think that like that you know it's really hard to study moral psychology without these these normative these making some sort of normative claim and I, and i think that that at least sometimes you guys really are making that claim by the way isaiah berlin was my favorite detroit piston of all time awesome <laughs> So, so you think that if, if we're saying, okay, well, this, you know, this kind of conceptualization can help people understand the other side, that that inevitably, that's just a slippery slope. Why can to- it help? No, no, no. It's not even a slippery slope. It's like, why can it help? Right. So if this I helps mean, me yeah. understand conservatives, conservative views, say, on uh, same-sex marriage or on abortion or something like that, uh, make, helps me understand that they are morally motivated and why they're morally motivated. Um, yeah, and part of it, might, it part temp- of it, sorry, go ahead. Well, well, should it temper my uh, my confidence yeah. that I have the right view? I think on so, those I, and issues? I think I think that's where it can help. Is not necessarily in all of a sudden thinking, oh yeah, the other side is is just as right as me. I, I have this new respect for their moral values. I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think the sort of process that, you know, that I felt of, of just being a little bit more mistrustful of my own moral convictions could actually be a good thing. Um, and, but why, and, I, I still don't understand why the moral diversity would shake your, your moral convictions. I mean, and if and you if don't think that is, uh, yeah. is has any effect on <laughs> right. ought. Right. If you're really drawing that line, then it matters absolutely zero. And and I think that's actually how we go around. I mean, it's not that we're not aware that other people have different moral values. Like we are very aware of the diversity, um, but it doesn't help at all unless you really think that the empirical data says something about what we ought to believe. No, I, and I don't think the empirical data says anything about what we ought to believe. Um, but I think doing this research, and, and not just the the pluralism aspect, but also the you know the nativism aspect, the the in, in, intuitionism of just understanding where these moral judgments come from, makes me less likely to think that I have the you know I think what's natural is to just think okay, well I have these moral judgments. Um, and that must be because there is one moral right answer. And so I have that answer. And if somebody else disagrees with me, then they're either deluded about that answer or they're just totally evil. You know, they don't care about morality at all. So I'm interested now in, in what you guys think that, uh, you know, a scientific theory of morality should do normatively. I mean, it seems like there's concerns there that maybe because we're not specifying anything about the normative side that, you know, this could be be used for the no, wrong so, purpose or, yeah, or like, so what, what do you think the, uh, a descriptive theory should be doing normatively no, no, okay no, it's not that we i was more asking just what you took from your own theory i'm not saying yeah, that yeah. it should be doing more than it's doing at least that's my i point. i think in fact in fact that uh here so here's my my worry is that uh you are making a normative claim when it comes to moral foundation theory and it's the very one that you ended with Right, that that uh, that the only way in which moral foundation theory can help 
say to- being more tolerant or being being sort of more open to other people's moral views is if you think that there is normative impl- there are normative implications to your data because if not then it has absolutely zero implications that is we can't use moral foundation theory as a way to make people more tolerant so i think that embedded oh, in moral foundations yeah embedded in the claim of moral foundations is a prior normative belief that in, is infused in what you look at when it comes to the data and and that that then ends up becoming clear when you make the conclusions that that it, this this might help us you know navigate our moral world and not be so intolerant because it's completely consistent with purely the descriptive claim that you keep maintaining um, that moral foundation theory is to actually find all of those views to be morally reprehensible except for your own. Right. So if you are going to use it to be more tolerant, so let's say purity wasn't a foundation, yeah. right? Let's just say you had decided, okay, we were wrong about purity being a foundation. And so now it seems like there's no, there's less reason to treat judgments that derive from the purity foundation with respect than there would have been if it had been a foundation. Right, that's a great way to put it, yeah. But that still seems like it's deriving ought from is there. It is. That's what we're saying that you're doing. But though. but that's what you're doing by just saying that we should be more tolerant in general. Right. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So you're you're worried that it, by saying, okay, well, moral foundation theory can can make us more tolerant in in general of of people with other beliefs because there should be a different status now that you know that this is a kind of part of evolved intuitive nature that you should have more respect for. Yeah, and and that's something I would definitely disagree with. I don't think moral foundations theory means you should have more normative agreement with uh, people that disagree with you. I, except for that's what you started by saying. Like, no, I was, I was saying for myself, I think that it makes me a little bit less trustful of my own moral You mean just as a sociological fact about learning about moral diversity? Because there's nothing in moral foundation theory that in particular – would make you more tolerant. No, but is yeah, it, just just learning about the where where my own moral judgments would come from. I went back and forth with Haida about this in my interview, and he was so much more willing to draw that conclusion that you seem to want to resist uh, so strongly. I, I probably am more and resistant I, to that than than John. Is. Again, I would say you know the the part the the Berlin quotes is is a kind of. Flirting with normativity only insofar as, you know, th- that this can help you understand the other side. I don't think that necessarily means that has to be a normative defense of the other side. <laughs> yeah, there's something that's not working about this, right, but I don't know if we're yeah, going to get to the no, bottom gonna, of it. We certainly can't resolve it, but it's a good discussion. I, I mean, I, yeah. I think that, that... But what... Okay, so what is the true morality then? Just as a final quick question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, well, it's... Oh shoot! I think my mic just went out. I just, <laughs> I just said it. Uh, uh, I just gave the true morality. No, no, no. I, I, I think you're sort of misunderstanding at least where I'm coming from with this, which is that I want you to embrace more the uh, normative implications, uh, or the normative implications, in part because I don't think it's possible. To, to to separate the two entirely. Now, right. I don't think that you can be like Sam Harris and just think that you can derive uh, morality in a simple and straightforward way from right. uh, from the data. That's certainly not where 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 I'm coming from. But I do think um, that 
that that it's not going to be so neat that that the that 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 this the moral psychology is going to have to have an effect. It's going to have to have an influence, if not a straightforward influence, on our on our moral thinking. Well, okay, so I mean, and, so what I tried to describe with myself is kind of you know the process I've gone through in, in just studying moral psychology, not just MFT, but moral psychology in general. Um, that seemed to be you know to have if there was any normative effect, it's that I'm a little bit less trustful of my own moral convictions, right? Um, I'm still not getting where, and so, and Dave, I, I would completely agree with you saying, um, well, if you think that it's going to increase, um, you know, people's tolerance for other moral beliefs, that that's just not going to happen, right? That's that. Well, that no, no. I, all I'm saying is that it doesn't follow, right? It it's, it just doesn't follow from from a, from a descriptive theory. I, I, I yeah. think that's yeah. I think that's right, and and that's yeah, I think there's an extent to which it does follow. Well, and that's, that's the thing. I guess I disagree with you with you guys. Like I think that there is that you think you we can't separate have to the give normative no, the more normative respect for uh, for these views that are j- simply because. The fact that something is a foundation, and if there is a core value that's grounded in one of these foundations, it means that you can't reason the person out of that, even if they are receptive to 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 reasoned uh, deliberation about about morality. But there's still this core. Just I'm putting my foot in the ground on the on this issue. It'll mean that there's difficulties in in convincing them, but it doesn't mean that. They're more likely to be absol- to be right in some absolute like normative but, but, sense. But but what then? What uh, it, I, I guess I don't know what that would even be I, then to be right in an absolute sense, even though there are smart, intelligent, well-reasoned people who are open-minded and willing to think about this issue, but but can't be persuaded, and yet they're still morally wrong in some way. Or they, I, I guess, I just don't know how. Like I, I don't understand the metaphysics behind that. I don't understand the. <laughs> so I, I think one way of saying yeah. of saying this is is that Tamler and I are both in agreement that one of these two positions has to be the one that you hold, right? Either you're with me that there's absolutely no descriptive implications. I mean, no normative implications to your descriptive work, and that would mean that you have to conclude that that there, nothing can be no no normative claims can be drawn from the plurality of morality. Um, or that there is something to be drawn from the plurality of morality as described by MFT, and you're with Tamler. And it seems as if sometimes you so you explicitly say what I am saying, and then you implicitly say what Tamler is saying. And so we're just, I think, I think that's where Tamler and I agree about about the the your weasel the your weasel. weasel right right okay so it's it's got to be one or the other yeah I th- I think that makes sense to me, and I think then the problematic part for you, Dave, would be. At, you know, throughout the whole paper, we're being purely descriptive. We're we're making this demarcation, but then at the beginning, in the end, we say, and also this moral pluralism can help people, you know, understand each other better. And you're right, saying, no, not- you can't, you can't do that part. Um, if I yep, had to choose like, between one or the other, then I would choose your position because I could just take out those two quotes for, of the paper, and then the rest it, of it is totally fine. We're being purely descriptive. I, we're not saying there's any normative implications that come out of this. That is much closer to my view. Um, yeah, I guess except, I would. St- I would still think no. You could still, you know, people might have. I, I, there, there could be positive things that come out of descriptively understanding where your own moral judgments come from. Uh, the way I and where I, other people's moral judgments come from, and yeah. where other people's moral judgments come from, 
but I don't think that necessarily means that you know you have to derive these normative implications. I, I really do think, and I probably am motivated. You know, I, I probably do want to think that you can have an absolute demarcation of the descriptive and the normative. Um, all right. Well, thanks for for hanging on this long, uh, Justin. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> we, uh, I, I, I want to emphasize how much we love this paper, and you know, I think you know, I am so on board w- in general with with the theory and the work too so uh and I, so yeah even though we've been having some lively disagreements yeah uh, no it's, it's great this I, is I, great I, stuff I, yeah I, I thought all your questions were great and my one uh request is that you guys now go see synecdoche new york um and i think it'll actually solve all of these problems we've been talking about all the normative descriptive stuff it's all in there it's, well we're it's all gonna there. we're all gonna die a miserable death we're all gonna cancer. die alone and <laughs> each one of us is alone <laughs> Yeah, although I am dying on Friday when I get my surgery. That's right. Episode no episode forty one will feature a new host. We'll be having sort of a rea- reality show style auditions. Awesome. Uh, this was your audition. Wow. Was a nice job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. All right, thanks, guys, uh, for joining All us. Right. See you guys next time.